You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 45 of the Crisis in the Church series. Don Tranquilo is joining us again this week to look at the question of canonizations since the time of the Second Vatican Council. Are the new canonizations infallible? To answer this, we'll need to see whether or not canonizations in the past were infallible first. It's commonly understood by most Catholics that canonizations are one of the things that are infallibly proclaimed by the Pope. How then can we square this seeming infallibility with some of the new saints who contradict previous saints or who during their lifetime spread errors? One quick note, Don Tranquilo does use the term worship when referring to the saints throughout this episode, but in English we commonly use the term veneration, just so there's no confusion when you're listening. So that said, let's get right into our discussion with Don Tranquilo about the new canonizations here on the SSPX podcast. Welcome back to our next episode on the Crisis in the Church series, and happy to have Don Tranquilo back with us again. Nice to Father, see you how again. Are, you too. How are things uh, going in? You're in Milan, right? I'm sorry. Um, I, I I'm the Priory is near Turin, yes, but it's not our town. Uh, the other chapel we, we go to is Milan, so yes. And this is my town. Milan is my, my, my own town, my own origin, yes. Very good. Well... Hopefully you survived the summer all right, and now we're heading into Thanks. heading into fall. Yes, um, we wanted to have you back to talk about um, canonizations, particularly the more recent canonizations of the church. Um, you know, and and it's a tricky subject, Father, because there are there are, there are many canonizations that seem good. Um, you know, for instance, the canonizations under the new right of Saint Maximilian Kolbe. Um, you know. Uh, seems to me to be fairly incontrovertible. He would be a, a good candidate for canonization. On the other hand, you have uh, candidates like John the 23rd and Paul the sixth, etc. So we need to discuss canonizations both in terms of how they were always done and how the church understands them and then how they're done today. Um, and so do we start with what a canonization is and and do we start with whether or not this canonization process, as we understand it, is infallible or not? Where do we sure. start with this discussion, Father? It's very important to start with with that, what a canonization is for or used to be, we should say, uh, how this was understood by the Church during centuries. Canonization were considered mostly to be infallible, even this it was discussed sometimes, but we have to consider them, the, the old ones at least, as infallible acts of magisterium. You would say, why? Because uh, infallibility, magisterium, is infallible when they say to you, oh, this thing belongs to the revelation, and this thing doesn't. Hmm? This truth is part of the revelation, and the contrary is, a, is an error, an heresy. So, men having lived uh, many centuries after our Lord, going to heaven is not revealed by our Lord or the Apostles, certainly, that, uh, I don't know, St. Francis is in heaven. This is not written in the Gospel or uh, uh, told by the Apostles, you would say, so it's not part of the revelation, which is certainly true. But in some way, even in canonization, the infallible power of teaching of the Church is, uh, in, um, is present. In which sense? When the Church defines that a man is a saint, the Church says, if you follow the life of this man, his example, his virtues, and specifically his heroic virtues, this is very important, you will be a heir of the faith and you will go to heaven. So the teaching is exactly to say, follow the, the life of this man or woman, is exactly what you have to do, or an example of what you have to do to go to heaven and to follow our Lord properly. So there is a teaching. It's a secondary object, if you if you want, of infallibility. It is like to give an example of how you have to live to be to go to heaven, actually, and not just to go to heaven, but to be to have hero, heroic virtues which is a bit more even than just to go to heaven, which is also a, quite an important point of our uh, discussion. So, of course, sanctity of St. Francis or uh, St. Maria Goretti is not revealed by God in itself. 
But what the church teaches is follow this man or woman and you will go to heaven. This is a good example. It's like if you, if you want to, when the church approves um, the rules of religious orders. It is not revealed that the rule of Saint, the rule of Saint Benedict or Saint Francis are not revealed by God. But the church approves them in the sense that it, uh, the church says, okay, this is a good way to uh, um, apply into your life, to practice into your life uh, the law of the gospel. So in this sense, they are infallible, like the laws of the church, the general laws of the church. If you follow these laws, you cannot uh, um, fall into some error against the faith. That doesn't mean that they are revealed by God, obviously, but it means that the church grants, guarantees their um, goodness. So, so this is this is done in order to to make the faithful understand that they can do these things, they can emulate these saints, or they can join this religious order with confidence. Exactly, that this will help me get to heaven. And if you follow them, their example, obviously not every detail of their life, but their examples right. of virtue, you will certainly go to heaven. So there is a teaching there, a living teaching of the gospel. Uh, and the church tells you that this is good, this is a good way. Obviously, these inf- the, the canonizations are, have also some other obje- objects. So, one being to propose the saint uh, for worship, public worship. This is very important. So, it enters into the laws of the liturgy. So, when a saint is canonized, you can celebrate Mass in his honor and pray him publicly. Indeed, once uh, the congregation, the Roman congregation, uh, doing the processes of canonization, was the canon the, the congregation of rites. So the same congregation mm-hmm. regulating the holy liturgy and the holy ceremonies. They also had the charge to uh, canonize or follow the canonization of saints, so that, because there is this aspect. And uh, yes, so uh, an example to follow, so a concrete example of the law of the gospel, uh, a liturgical law also in some way, so it is also infallible. And uh, yes, so these are the aspects. Uh, but so, you see, there is not just there is not just a disciplinary law. There is always some kind of relation to the revelation, not direct in this case, but through the example. If you like, if also uh, condemnation of heretics is the the opposite. Uh, when the church con- ju- does not just condemn heretics, heresies, but also heretics. So you have not to follow that man, just not his doctrines, but also that man is condemned by the church uh, as such, unless he converts, obviously. Uh, it is the, 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 the other face of the, of the coin, if you like. Uh, so, obviously, infallibility would be related, connected with such an action, an action such kind of canonization. If you change the action, you do, you are not also, you, you, you lose this uh, possibility, if you like, of being infallible. Infallibility is certainly an action, or a passion, if you like, an action of the Holy Ghost and a passion within the, the Pope, in this case. Uh, it's not a quality. The Pope has the power to teach, but it has not infallibility as a quality in himself. It is an action of the Holy Ghost when he does certain kinds of actions, coming okay. out of his power of teaching in a certain degree, like in true canonizations or in definitions and so on. This is quite an important point, not just for this subject, this topic of canonization, but for all the question of the crisis of the authority. So, if you like, canonization is just one of the, the cases uh, we we have to understand this this situation after the council. Um, so, fallibility is a property which supposes the essential definition of the act to which it corresponds. If the definition has changed, is changed, 
by the very fact the property attached it changes to it changes if the act becomes doubtful its infallibility becomes also doubtful if the act of canonization becomes a doubtful act of teaching there is no longer infallibility right. that's very simple this is also true for the new mass for example which is an act of legislation with some problems maybe but the question is that the popes the new popes so to speak and the, the modern popes want to separate the teaching aspect from these actions so the the magisterium the part of magisterium which was uh, uh, connected to these actions and they become just disciplinary laws in some way without connection with the revealed truth that they do not uh, really believe in in the sense that they do not believe actually in revelation as we understand it as we as Catholics understand it right. <laughs> but this we right. will see uh, talking of the subject uh, so, so the point that you're making here is, is in an act for an act to be infallible. I mean, basically, and, and this makes sense when you when you think about it. Obviously, the if you change any part of that act, then the the product, the the end result is is no, can no longer be seen as infallible. Exactly, it's because simple. infallibility is is received, but in in certain acts, not every act of the Pope. If this acts are no longer there because simply the popes uh, don't want to to do these kind of actions so infallibility is no longer um, possible it is possible in theory yes if they do different di- differently but if they do new canonization so to speak or new kinds of law uh, new kinds new new kinds of acts that didn't exist before they are not related to the revelation and so on and to the teaching of the revelation with authority, so there is no longer infallibility in these actions. The Pope could be okay. could do if he if he liked, if he wanted, if he changed uh, in his mind uh, infallible acts again. But apparently, these new canonizations, for example, are different from before from the, what, what they used to be, and so obviously they are not. Also, they are not infallible, and sometimes they are fallible. Actually, we will see. That's the first point, if you like. What a canonization is, so to propose to the faithful an example of how you have to live according to the revelation. Now, okay. we have to understand how we can say why we say new canonizations are probably not uh, the same as the old ones. So they are also not infallible. That's our point. What are the new canonizations and why they are different from the old ones, even if the name is maybe the same, and some also formulas the Pope uses are very similar, but these formulas, for example, we define that this man is a saint, I make a simple example, uh, the formula mm-hmm. of the canonization are not really changed, but we have to understand that there is not a kind of magic uh, formulas. No? Uh, you say that word, or the form of sacraments, and it's not the same thing. It's a, an act of teaching, it's not just words uh, producing an, a magical effect. Uh, it's not that. Right. What they mean? Right. There's no. There's no matter form. It's no, just no. This is a not a sacrament. Really. Obviously. Yes. Right. Exactly. The ceremony of canonization is a ceremony uh, where you see what the Pope did or is doing. Uh, so you have to understand that the nature, the very nature of what they do. According to what they say of that about that, obviously we are not trying to uh, interpret interpret something. Or it's just l- listening to their words and their documents about their new concepts of canonization. Not just in general about teaching and dialogue and modernism and ecumenism and so on, which would apply to all the new acts of the popes, but in specific about canonization. All the matter of canonizations has been completely, as everything in the church in the last 50 years, completely uh, changed, by, in particular by John Paul II, also by Paul okay. VI, but mostly and uh, completely, so to speak, uh, by John Paul II. So, at least after the document we will quote of John Paul II, there is a real change in the nature of canonization. I would say maybe also before, because... 
many changes were already being uh, applied by Paul VI. They were make, made official by this constitution of John Paul II. But anyway, at least after that, there is a very change of the definition itself of canonization. We will try okay. to understand. Uh, then why we, we wonder also why, where is, what is another starting point. Obviously, there are canonizations that are very unlikely uh, of people who, it's difficult to say they were Catholics, maybe. Uh, we will see. Uh, if you accept the canonization of John Paul II, his example would be, for, for, would be opposite to the example of other saints, especially in relation to other religions or uh, Christian churches, so, so to speak. Uh, what he said and what he did is completely opposite to what contradictory to what other canonized saints did. We will see also some of that. Okay. Okay, now, if you like, we will try to understand in, of these new canonizations what has changed not in technical details, but in their essence. There are some hints, if you like, try hints make an evidence, a proof. <laughs> but one of one is is a hint; the other ones are more substantial. The first thing, having changed, more a hint of a new mindset, is the change of the procedure. The procedure of canonization has been um, particularly simplified and changed uh, by Paul VI and then as we have said by uh, John Paul II in 83 uh, by the constitution Divinus Perfectionis Magister so we will talk specifically about that document in particular uh, for example now canonizations are uh, the fact, all the, 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 procedure, the procedure, the investigations and so on, are made by the local bishop. And then the Holy See is just supervising, if you like, the operation. Once it started, it was started by the local bishop, but then it was done directly by the Holy See, by the congregation, and it's official. Uh, so this is quite a change. And this is in the sense, and we will see later, better, the second point, in the sense of collegiality. And this is very important where the collegiality comes back, if you, as you see, uh, also for canonization. <laughs> it's your favorite topic, yes. isn't it, Father? It comes it's back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there is a single inquiry made by the bishops. You know, there are also miracles. Are, uh, you, you just have uh, need the two miracles, one for beatification and another one for canonization, whereas before there used to be two and two. And all the procedure is given to the local bishop and the Holy See is just supervising and then uh, make an, ex an exam, but not directly investigating uh, in some way. Um, it's less rigorous and sometimes it's banded also by uh, the popes for um, the people they like uh, uh, as a, for example they the second was you have to, to wait for some years before starting a process and this was uh, right. uh, dispensed for the second or from Mother Teresa and so on. Obviously this change of procedure uh, it's not in itself the problem obviously you can change things right. make them simpler or just to change some details or historical questions so that's not really the problem but it makes you already understand there is a new uh, idea a new men my, my mentality uh, uh, especially the fact that it is given to the bishops uh, and uh, uniquely the bishops actually at least in a formal sense uh, this they wanted to do that to do that, but the second point. So the first hint is this change of procedure, and uh, it's easier, so to speak, uh, to do a canonization today. Uh, the second point is collegiality, as we have seen. Uh, collegiality. This is a very delicate point because it's a bit difficult, maybe, to understand uh, what has really what has changed and in which sense. 
We have seen that the Pope leaves to the bishops to make a direct judgment of the causes of saints and reserves to himself only the power to confirm this judgment. This was the practice a very long time ago, in, in the, before the 12th century in particular, and we do not consider many of those uh, canonizations as uh, true canonizations, uh, unless they have been confirmed later, sometimes centuries later. Canonizations having happened in that way before the 12th century, unless they were later, and sometimes by later sortines or later confirmed, are still considered now as beatifications, actually. Beatification is, no, you know, is just a local concession of worship, so it's not infallible because it's local, it's not general, and it could, it, uh, it could be done in the, the Middle Ages by the bishop, actually. So it's not a paper was, act, was, it's not infallible. Yes. I was going to ask on this point, Father, um, and, and you, you brought it up, so I, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll ask it right now. Before, the, the, the way that canonizations were done traditionally is a relatively new thing. Uh, in the church, in in olden times, there was not this this intense procedure done by the Vatican. It, it stemmed from the local area, so people would acclaim. People would say, "This person is a saint. This is this is part of our local tradition." And then the church would say, "Yes, okay, that's fine." Yeah. Um, and so, so that was that was my question. What's the problem with going back to the local procedure? Because that's the way it was done in these early times. There is but no problem. Exactly. There is no problem. But you have not to talk of an infallible canonization. You talk of a kind of beatification. Right. Okay. If you want to do like before the 12th century, you you have a kind of beatification. Now, obviously, it's not exactly as it used to be at that time, because right. anyway, the Pope assumes what the ordinary bishop does, uh, what the bishop does. Uh, so, and he pronounces a sentence, obviously. But uh, there is something to be, because now the judgment is given by the bishop, and it's just confirmed by the Holy See, by the Pope. Whereas in the old, in classical canonizations, as we understand them, the judgment was given directly and only by the Pope. John Paul okay. II says in this document, in the light of the doctrine of the Second Vatican Council on Collegiality, we also think that the bishops themselves should be more closely associated with the Holy See in dealing with the causes of saints. It's important. So, this is the first point. They want to associate the bishops so the, the action of canonization becomes a collegial action. Not just a Pope's sentence, infallible sentence, but a collegial action. So, yes, they, they say, can, uh, there is a, a motto proper of uh, uh, 98, at to endam fidem, about the power of magisterium and so on, which is enlightening. We have to in, un, introduce this, this document to understand the problem. Okay. Uh, it says, obviously there is the infallible teaching, it's a theoretical uh, document, it explains the kinds of magisterium that can exist. According to this document, there is obviously infallible magisterium, like the Assumption of Our Lady or uh, but this is not our problem now. And it says there is there are also some truths uh, that are not real, formally revealed, but they are connected with revelation, and uh, they are um, commonly believed by the Church, taught by the College of Bishops, and the Pope is just saying, okay, this is part of this teaching is not using the first kind of uh, infallibility, so his own infallibility, because they never use it actually, and they seem never to use it. Says so there is some kind of uh, magisterium of the Pope, which is just to say, this teaching is taught by all the College of Bishops. So if you remember about collegiality, the, col the, the College is, um, of Bishops, is the second head of the church with the Pope, under the Pope, but it is in itself a second head of the church. And um, 
how can we understand when this college of bishops does some action? It's impossible because they are all around the world. So the Pope can in some way say this is an action of the college of bishops. Mm. He just declares it. Mm. Now, in another instruction called Donum Veritatis of 1990, Cardinal Ratzinger said that this third category we have seen for example, is the category of canonization of saints. And he, he makes another example, which is very important for us, the document, if you remember of it, of John Paul II about ordination of women. In this document, you could believe that he did an, an infallible declaration, as in the old times, against ordination of women. But then Cardinal Ratzinger said, no, 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 absolutely not. We do not do that anymore. Uh, this is something which is believed by all the bishops, all the church, and so it's already infallible in some way. And we, the Pope just uh, declares that this is believed by the entire church, but it's not his own infallibility being directly used as in the, the definitions of uh, the old times. <laughs> now, this would mean, if we have understood a bit of these passages, uh, said by them, not by us, uh, that in the new canonizations, there is no longer the, the idea of the Pope using his own authority as it used to be, but a kind of declaration of something that is actually made by the College of Bishops as the head of the Church. As we have, uh, John Paul II says, canonizations must be, uh, must involve the bishops more than it used to be, not just the Holy See. Then they say there are some actions of the Pope that are not his own infallible magisterium being uh, used, but it's just a kind of declaration of something that is already uh, taught by the bishops or by the college and so on. And these kind of things are, for example, the document of ordination of women and against ordination of women and canonizations. So you see, they seem to say we change the subject doing canonizations. We have so we do not believe actually that this subject exists, the College of Bishops, as they understand it. And so it seems that it's no longer the same thing. Right. So so what what John Paul II was doing, just to make sure I understand this, Father, he he has said the this in this declaration of canonizations does not belong to the infallibility of the Pope directly. Mm-hmm. It belongs to the infallibility, this new definition of infallibility of the College of Bishops with the Pope. According to Ratzinger, so this, no yeah, this was an act of the ordinary magisterium of the Pope. So not infallible, uh-huh. but as they say, ordinary or... Uh, they say exactly that. And so uh, this ordinary magisterium would be also used uh, in this category of canonizations. So uh, the object of this act will be to discern doctrines as infallibly taught by the ordinary and universal magisterium of the college. But this doesn't seem to exist, and it's difficult to apply that also to... uh, to canonization, but that's what they say. It's like certifying an act of the College of Bishops. The Pope so in that case, then, for for a canonization to be infallible, it would have to follow then the same the same logic as anything else in the ordinary and universal magisterium. And, yeah. and we've seen this in previous episodes. There are certain standards that you can hold something to to see whether or not it fits within this ordinary and universal magisterium. Exactly, but the the. the mm, Yes, and in any, in any case, the ordinary universal magisterium, as we understand it, is the magisterium of the Pope associating to himself all right. the bishops in the world. But it's oh, it right. is not not the magisterium of the College of Bishops as it is understood by Lumen Gentium, as we have said. It's very different. It's formally a different subject. It's a different subject. Yeah. It's not the same subject. Right. It's the second subject of the, the authority, as they... Uh, call it. Uh, so, 
taking into account both the constitution divinus perfectionis magister and the motto proprio tuendam fidem, when the Pope exercises his personal teaching authority to proceed to a canonization, it seems that this, this that his will is to intervene as the organ of the collegial magisterium. So thus, canonization are no longer guaranteed by the personal infallibility of the Pope's solemn magisterium. So it's, I don't know if it's clear, but that's what they say if you want to read what they, they say. <laughs> and um, so, does this exist? We, we never spoke of, of canonizations in that sense, even of the ordinary universal magisterium in the classical sense was never understood like that. And indeed what they say is that they are the actions of the College of Bishops as the second head of the Church. So it's all very unlikely for a Catholic to to take as, as real, as functioning. So this is another reason to doubt of uh, the nature of these new canonizations. There is a hint, changes of change of procedure. There is another thing that is changes of uh, subject doing that and uh, category of the use of authority and magisterium. And there is a third question that we are going to uh, to talk about, which is uh, the change of definition of heroic virtue or better, we could say the change of uh, the definition of sanctity, of sainthood. Usually we, we think, we say that you canonize a saint because he practices heroic virtues. All the mm -hmm. uh, investigation used to be about heroic virtues. Uh, so that you have to follow the, the, this example of heroism. Uh, not just of common virtue, of normal uh, Christian life. You do not canonize somebody who had a normal, usual Christian life, more or less uh, proper, but right. somebody who was a hero of the faith. Martyrs were the first heroic virtues, virtue of force, but then also heroism in the other virtues, theological ones, and then moral ones, obviously. Uh, if you change the object of uh, uh, that, you change the act. The acts are defined by their object. If the object of canonization is to define heroic virtue, and you change that, you won't have the same act as before. Mm. Um, because now it seems that uh, these new saints are more the dig the, the inspired by the dignity of human nature than by the action of the Holy, Holy, Holy Ghost. There is a sign of that new perspective, which is the number of canonizations. You know that canonization, especially under John Paul II, but still now, have increased in some uh, incredible way, unbelievable. So. John Paul II alone did more canonizations than all the popes since, uh, the, at least since the official way of canonizing after six, the fifth. Uh, there are uh, less canonization in four centuries than just in the pontificate of John Paul II. So you can say obviously wow. there are much more Catholics now in the world in the last century than they used to be because there are more Catholics uh, baptized and so on which is quite true but this is not probably enough to explain that it's a question of what the council uh, said about holiness and uh, sanctity and that's what John Paul II said in 84 in a speech to the cardinals during a consistory he said uh, Yes, the gospel is so diffused in the world, and so certainly so there are more beatification and canonization. He said that, but also he said uh, the council has spotlight in a special way the universal call to holiness, which is in some way true. But call to holiness doesn't mean that everybody becomes holy. Uh, there is a difference between uh, this uh, uh, call 
and then this reali realization. There's not just a difference between the universal um, redemption, obviously our Lord died for every man, but not every man is saved afterwards, and so everybody is called to holiness, but that doesn't mean that everybody becomes a saint with heroic virtues too. This universal call of holiness is in the chapter 5th of Lumen Gentium. Uh, so there is kind of ordinary sanctity, which is holiness, which is now uh, sufficient for canonization in some way. And sometimes it seems to, you seem to see that in some of these new canonizations. Mm. And the term of heroic virtue is never used by Lumen Gentium in this chapter 5th when they call, when they talk about holiness. Mm. So there is a change also in the object, which is quite important because object defines the, the act. Mm. And then, related to that, this would be another, maybe another conference to do, uh, is the problem of the ecumenism of sanctity since Vatican II. Uh, For them now, you can be a saint even if you are not a Catholic. Obviously, the, the Catholic Church doesn't canonize Protestants or Orthodox, I don't know, doesn't, she doesn't, at the moment, for the moment. But... <laughs> It has say, been said many times by the recent popes, even by Pope Francis, uh, many times, by many times when you Paul the second, I will maybe quote some of these things, but that there, are, there is a holiness outside of the church. So this is also quite problematic. How can you say that there are saints, heroic saints and so on, outside of the church? This would be incompatible with the uh, uh, Catholic concept of canonization, obviously. Uh, John Paul II said uh, that there is a kind of communion of holiness, transcending the different religions, manifesting the redemptive action of Christ and the outpowering of his spirit on the whole of mankind. You know that uh, it, says, it says also that the universal presence of the saints is a proof of the transcendent power of the spirit against the division of the Christians. There is a communion of saints, in that sense, he used this, this word, which is obviously a part of the creed, in that sense he says that the most convincing form of ecumenism is the ecumenism of the saints and of the martyrs. The communio sanctorum speaks louder than the things which divide us. So we are divided by faith, actually, in theory. But according to John Paul II, that's not a problem because we are united by, because we have saints, common saints, saints in every Christian church or community or however you want to like to, to call them. Uh, so there is already a communius, communio sanctorum, a communion of saints in the sense we have talked about saints now, even with people outside of the church. And if you have this kind of uh, conception of sanctity, even outside of the church, how can you canonize a saint? That's a problem. So he says also, uh, the communion between our communities, so other Christian communities, even if still incomplete, is truly and solidly grounded in the full communion of the saints, those who, at the end of a life faithful to grace, are in communion with Christ in glory. These saints come from all the churches and ecclesial communities, which gave them entrance into salvation. So, you see, this is completely not, not, Catholic, not Catholic conception of sanctity, of holiness. The witness to Christ, born even uh, to the shedding of blood, has become a common inheritance of Catholics, Orthodox, Anglican, and Protestants, as Pope Paul VI pointed out in his homily for the canonization of the Ugandan martyrs. Uh, Benedict, Pope Benedict and also Pope Francis went to visit the Ugandan martyrs, the Anglican martyrs. Obviously, we do not believe that they can be martyrs in the true sense of the word according to the Catholic doctrine common Catholic doctrine on the contrary then maybe they are saved because our Lord was merciful to them and gave them the grace of conversion because they uh, gave his blood I don't know we never, nobody could know that maybe uh, certainly 
but this is not right. heroic virtue or a, an example of sanctity. It's invisible, cannot be an example. Uh, if it happened, that they converted to the church before dying and giving their blood, uh, we will never know that. So it's not an example. We cannot teach that. Right. It's impossible. Right. Clearly, wow. that's uh, another point. So you have procedures, you have collegiality, and then you have this new definition of holiness, uh, common holiness without heroic virtues and ecumen ecumenical holiness. So holiness outside of the church. So you, you see that this is very tricky to be called canonization in the old sense of the word. Right. And then there are facts. If you canonize John Paul II, you must uncanonize all the saints that did exactly the opposite of what he did. Exactly. <laughs> Having been in Scotland, right. I often think about uh, the blessed John Ogilvy, was a Jesuit martyr in Glasgow. Uh, when he died, was caught and so on, tried by the, the Protestants, the Calvinists, the, the king in particular, uh, King James. Uh, when he went to the to death, there were people around, obviously, and he said this, he said, um, if there are some hidden Catholics here, let them pray for me. But uh, the prayer of heretics, I will not have. So he refused the prayer of heretics. He became a saint because of that, as many others. This is just an example. Uh, right. John Paul II wanted the prayer of heretics, and not only of heretics, as we know, in Assisi or uh, many times, many occasions, as all the modern popes, they wanted the heretics and the pagans also to pray for peace or other things in common meetings. And even if they didn't pray together, they wanted them, they, in, they called them to pray for peace in Assisi or for other questions. So this is exactly the opposite in a quite an important matter like faith and uh, belonging to your religion, which is not heroic, it's just the base of uh, being a Christian. So you see that there is a great, a big problem. Uh, so obviously we have not to choose, this is the last and important thing, we have not to choose canonizations. We do not say Padre Pio is canonized because he was very good and we believe it was very good and John Paul II is not canonized because he was not good or other. Uh, because otherwise we would be just become the Pope. <laughs> we decide right, we're just who picking is and choosing what we want. <laughs> exactly. Otherwise we are the Pope. Right. Uh, we just say all new canonizations are problematic, are different of what they used to be before. So we do not call them, or we can call them canonizations if they like, but they are not the same thing. So we do not believe that they are as in, infallible, infallible as they used to be, and so maybe they can be put into discussion. And in any case, as the Archbishop wanted, we just wait and say we do not worship in public even good people canonized by the new popes, like Padre Pio, for example. We can pray them in private, obviously, if we, we think they are good, good and saint, but we do not pray them as canonized saints because of a question of prudence, because all of these acts are together doubtful. So obviously we would never think that John Paul II can be canonized, but uh, uh, we do not choose. We, we say we wait uh, when, uh, and we, we, we do not worship, at least in public, anyone, any, any of these new saints, because it's dangerous, it's imprudent. Uh, they are all doubtful not as people, but as canonizations. And so we just say, if we want to pray some of them in private, you are free to do that, obviously, but not never in public, obviously, and in public worship, in liturgy in particular. So this is... I was, I was going to ask that, I was going to ask that exact question, Father. There's a, um, I'm, I grew up in, in Kansas, uh, and there's a, there's a priest who is from Kansas, and he went and, and he was a chaplain in the army during the Korean War, he died in a prison camp. His story is very similar to, to Maximilian Kolbe in that sense. Um, but he is on the track to being canonized, and that makes me very happy, right? It's yes. my, you know, I, I have a connection there. Um, 
And I was telling my wife, it would be great. We could go, if, if he's ever canonized, it would be great to go to Rome. So I'm just asking your opinion as Father Tranquilo, would you go? I mean, would you, you know, would you, you want to go? How, how do you see this canonization? I mean, obviously, emotionally, I want this to happen. This would be great. But how, how, how do I feel about this? I'm asking you how I should feel about it, Father. Yeah, I understand. But if I did that, if I went enthusiastically to Rome for a canonization I like, there is no reason I should refuse a canonization I don't yeah. like. Uh, uh, for example, John Paul II or uh, Paul VI, which is quite nice. Uh, because in that case, I choose good canonizations according to my standards, my which is pointless and it's dangerous. Uh, so the yeah. would say would be very uh, bright in telling us, or oh, you are like Protestants, you choose between what you like. Yeah. We say. These actions, these acts of new canonizations are all problematic because they're all done with these new principles and definitions and different use of authority. So obviously, in this lot of people being canonized, there are very good people and holy people would would have been canonized even before (laughs) and people less good. Uh, But this is not the problem. There is a problem. Yes, maybe we understand that there is a problem when we see some problematic canonization, but this is just uh, a posteriori, uh, just uh, how we start to wonder about things. If we haven't done that before, we start to do that when we see that there is something wrong. But then all of them are problematic. So I would never... uh, go to a new canonization also because it's during the new mass and so on so unlikely to go there Uh, and I would maybe pray this holy priest uh, in my home with with my children I don't know or in private certainly there is no problem with that on the contrary if if you think it was uh, if you've read his life and you like that you can do that you can also pray your grandfather if you think he was a saint uh, there's, that's not a problem if it is private. But I would never right. say the mass in honor of this um, priest or of Padre Pio or John Paul II. Or, I don't know. Because this is public worship and you have to have a regular canonization before. A normal canonization in the true sense of the word. Yes. Because w- the, w- there are so many doubts about this canonization, it is at least, at least prudent to avoid public worship. Uh, uh, at yeah. least and sometimes to speak against them because it becomes connected to the profession of faith if you do not uh, tell anything about uh, uh, canonization of John Paul II it would seem that you accept what he did or Paul VI or, and, and they, that they could, they could be sane which is unlikely at least right. so yes it's very mm-hmm. delicate because obviously uh, Sometimes the, the, the difficulty to see that uh, these uh, uh, new things are different than the, the, the old ones is sometimes uh, hard. But you have to do that. You can understand that even the simple faithful can understand that in a sense that he sees that there is something totally changed within the church that it cannot just be there cannot just be something that is perfect like canonization are perfect and all other things are a mess. Obviously, you can even if this is a bit more subtle than other questions like new mass that you can see immediately there is something wrong. Uh, at least uh, if you are a bit uh, a bit of faith. Uh, here it's more difficult maybe but uh, at least you you understand there is a general problem and you say so maybe there is also within into canonizations not just in general or in all other topics but not this one obviously the use of authority is in general problematic today and this applies also to uh, this this matter obviously not only to, to all the other ones Yes. Right, right. Well, that's very helpful, Father. Um, thank you. And I, and I want to note that um, in preparing for this episode, um, you were looking at a study that was done by Father uh, Glez. Is yes, that's how you pronounce his name, right? Glez. Glez. Yes, that's very important. Yes. <laughs> it was uh, my professor in Econ, 
and he, ah. he did different studies about uh, canoe canonizations. The, my conference is mostly from him. Uh, okay. Big part of it. You can ha you have it in English. I think you will put the link yes. on uh, the, of your website. Uh, yes. So you will find everything I said. Actually, uh, he is the one I think who studied this question the more and uh, more precisely. So I think uh, if you want to uh, deepen the question, you can read that uh, the, those articles. They are very good. Yes. Yeah. So we will we will link that here. Um, and in case you're listening and you don't and you can't find the link or whatever, it's called Beatification and Canonization since Vatican II. You can find that on sspx.org, but we will link it as well. So, well, Father, it's um it's sad, um, especially selfishly in the case of Father Father Capon, who who I love. Um, but you know this is this is just one of one of the many things that the faithful and this is a small thing to suffer you know, to not have or to not be sure about uh, the saints. Um, but this is just one of those things that, that the faithful have to work through since all of this has started. Um, and, and you know, w we hope for a restoration and, you know, a, a future pontificate to come in and say, all right, yes, no, yes, no. You know, that would be nice, but... At the moment, we pray. Yeah, we, we can still pray Padre Pio in private or in our families. There is no problem about that. Uh, obviously, yeah. Uh, so do not be worried about that. If Padre Pio wants to give you a grace, he will give you, and he certainly we can still believe he's in heaven. Also, Archbishop Lefebvre or other people uh, being canonized or not. <laughs> uh, right. This right. is not a problem. Uh, just we have to abstain from public worship. Yes, that's sure. Yes. Very good. Father, thank you for your time. Thank you, and see you soon, I hope. God bless Absolutely. you. Thank God you. bless you. Bye. You too. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 45 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. Next week, we'll have Father McFarlane back to discuss the other Latin mass communities in the Catholic Church, sometimes called the Ecclesia Dei communities. On the surface, they seem very similar to the Society of St. Pius X. They look and often sound exactly the same. But Father will explain how there are problems that go a lot deeper, and it's not just about the Latin Mass. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and to the SSPX News English YouTube channel so that you won't miss next week's episode or any of our future ones. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of $5 or $10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this crisis in the church project and future projects. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you.